So, tonight we are going to continue our talking about Sabbath rest. Last week we looked at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the idea of Sabbath rest. As you might know, Jews and Christians uh, participate in this ritual of setting aside one day, at least historically Jews and Christians have set aside one day, though they differ on the day, um, they, they are both committed to the idea, at least historically, that one day and seven should be set apart. And the reason is because the Bible talks about that. Hebrews 4 is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And the heart of what I said yesterday, and this is what Hebrews 4 is about, is that even though God promised this promised land rest to his people, they entered into it though not all of them, because some of them didn't believe. But then later, after they'd been in the promised land, God spoke through David and promised another day and another rest that was still in the future. So what the writer of Hebrews says is that the promised land, that particular piece of real estate in the Middle East, did not exhaust all that God had intended for his people when he communicated this idea of rest. And the book of Hebrews says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And yet, for us to talk about rest, I felt like it really takes two weeks. Um, And today, this will be a little more topical, though we're going to look at some passages. But here's what I want you to understand. This idea of rest is extremely countercultural in our day and age. And a lot of the problem in understanding what Christianity is really all about, whether you've grown up in church or whether this is one of the first times you've ever been to a meeting uh, of Christian stuff, wherever you're at in your journey, there's, there's some particular words that are very important to Christianity that mean something very different in our culture. And a lot of times... We assume that what our culture means by these words is what the Bible means by these words. Now, there's actually lots of these words that I could use as examples. Faith, love, hope. Every one of these, the Bible means something very different than what the culture means. But also this word, rest, is a a supremely important word, but one that I, I would say Christianity has a rather particular and unique understanding of rest and what it's about. And one of the reasons that our, our day and age has such a difficult time with rest starts with our confusion we have over work. In, in the Ten Commandments, when God says that we should rest on one day, it also says we should work uh, on the other days. And so work and rest are always connected. So if you're, if you're mixed up about what work is and what it's for then you will probably be confused about rest. And I will just say that in the kind of evangelical Christian church, there's a lot of confusion about work. A lot of people kind of have this hierarchy of callings in God's sort of universe. The way they think, this is the way they think. The highest, most spiritual people are missionaries, especially to difficult places. And just behind them are pastors. And then there are sort of kind of normal people who might work regular jobs, but they're expected to be missionaries at their job to try to justify not being missionaries or pastors. Or if they're not very good missionaries at their job, at least they should make money and give it to missionaries and pastors. And so it's this sacred, secular dichotomy that part of one of the main things the Reformation was about was about coming against that lie 
that there are some sacred callings, like being a professional full-time ministry person, that are inherently more pleasing to God than normal work. But in our evangelical churches, we often still are confused about this. You rarely will see a commissioning of somebody to go work in an office cubicle at church. But we'll commission missionaries, we'll commission teams to go on short-term mission trips. Um, but but we, we do this kind of thing all the time. So that's one problem. In our culture, we have a, a, maybe a problem which I think bleeds over into the church too, and it's this. Basically, we work at our play, and we play at our work. Um, I'm a classic rock fan, so I don't know how many of you all are Loverboy fans. I wouldn't say I'm really a Loverboy fan, but one of their best songs ever, of course, was Working for the Weekend. used to play that in my high school band. Um, working for the Weekend. But that captures what a lot of people like. Work, in other words, is a necessary evil to get money so that you can play. Work is, is something you have to have in your life, but it's not what you were made for. You were made to play, and work is a necessary evil to be able to play, right? Uh, and then there's others, though, in our culture, and this is probably more y'all, or you wouldn't be Belmont students, though I know not all of you are Belmont students, but particularly the Belmont students here. I, I'd say probably most of you fall into what David uh, Brooks, New York Times columnist, um, calls the meritocracy. He describes in his book, Bobo's in Paradise, which I, I think some of you guys have read for sociology, right? Love that book. It's a great book. He talks in there about what happened when some of our elite universities no longer took your family connections and having a father or grandfather or mother or grandmother who attended Harvard or Yale, and when those schools started putting less emphasis on your family connection and more emphasis on your grades and your test score and your resume, it introduced a profound shift in our society where no longer was there an aristocracy where the cultural elites were based upon family connections, but it became more of what he calls a meritocracy. In a meritocracy, you have to prove yourself every day. And he says that what's happened now, particularly for college students, life is a continual aptitude test. And you're one mistake away from blowing your whole career and everything that you've worked so hard to create. And it's probably even worse now, because now if you blow it, it's liable to be on the internet forever, right? Like he, when he wrote this book, that wasn't really a factor. So if anything, it's only intensified that pressure. You feel like you have to audition all the time. You're only as good as where the, how well you're able to perform. So while there are some people who are saying, work, forget about work, who cares about work, I just need to make enough money so that I can get to the weekend and play or party or do whatever extreme sports or whatever it is you like to do, shop, whatever it is, that's me, I like to, I'd, I'd rather go antique shopping than play extreme sports, but that's just me. Um, but other people, they're basically trying to define their worth by work. So for some people, you know, work has no value, for others, it has all the value, um, which, you know, basically produces stressed out workaholics who are terribly insecure, which I think describes a lot of college students I know, <laughs> uh, honestly. Um, one of the best ways I think of illustrating this is that old movie Chariots of Fire. Do you guys remember that movie? It's based on a true story, and there's two runners. There's Harold Abrams, who's a Jewish guy, and then there's Eric Little, who's a Christian who eventually goes to China to be a missionary. And in the movie, you know, both of them have an opportunity to talk about why they run. 
They're both runners who are going to run in the Olympics, right? And they both have opportunity. And Harold Abrams expresses this meritocracy and what it feels like from the inside. He says at one point when he's talking about an upcoming race, he says, I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Will I be able to justify my whole existence in those 10 seconds? That's what running means to me. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. It's contrasted in that movie by Eric Little. His sister doesn't want him to run, wants him to go be a missionary to China. And he says, yes, God has made me for China, but God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Two very different reasons for running. And it it bears pondering for you all and for me to ask myself, why do I run? Why do I do what I do? The guy that helped really teach me about college ministry, a guy named Bebo uh, Elkins, we call him the Yoda of RUF, he's retired now. But he used to say that basically my job, and what he does is he would go around and work with the campus ministers on the various campuses. And he says, my job, I basically am paid to come to your campus and ask you, Kevin, why are you doing what you're doing? Because so much of what we do, we never reflect on it. We never stop to think about why we're doing what we're doing. And one of the great gifts of practicing Sabbath rest is an opportunity to think about why are we doing what we're doing, particularly with regard to time. Because time is one of these interesting things. Modern man thinks that they've captured and been able to take control of time. Os Guinness, profound Christian writer and thinker, has written an entire book on what a difference the stopwatch and the clock and mechanical time has made in our culture, in our modern Western culture. And yet, even though we think we've controlled time, in so many ways it controls us. One of my favorite movies, which they've now made into a TV series, which my wife loves. But I don't love because I love the movie so much. And we saw a little bit of the movie last, was it last night, night before? Parenthood by Steve Martin. Anybody seen Parenthood with Steve Martin? No, they have a new show now. Um, the movie's much better, sorry. It, it, of course, it has to be, right? But in that, in that movie, Steve Martin is kind of this businessman, and he's facing pressures at home. His wife wants him to be home more. His kid is freaking out. He needs to be home, and yet his boss is ready to fire him and even does fire him because he doesn't sacrifice enough, and he isn't at work, and he isn't whining and dying important clients and all that. And at some point, he and his wife are having this big fight, and he utters these words that I just love. He says, my whole life is have to. Do you feel like that? My whole life is have to. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. I have to do that. Um, My friend Scotty Smith likes to talk about Christians who grow up in legalistic churches who are always shooting all over themselves. I should do this. I should do that. I should do this. But I would say that meritocracy-influenced students are, you know, have to. I have to. I have to. I have to. And sometimes you just need to be able to pull back and say, wait, do I really have to? Sabbath is about taking a countercultural stand and saying, I don't have to. I don't have to live like life depends upon me and what I can make out of it. But let's look at a couple passages, and then we'll, we'll explore this idea a little more. 
there are two places, you know, the Ten Commandments, well, you may not know this, but the two com- Ten Commandments are repeated in Scripture. They're in Exodus chapter 20, and then they're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is really Moses' sermon based on the Exodus and the wandering material. So at the end of his life, he basically kind of looks back over all of the what's happened to Israel, wandering in the desert, all this stuff, and he basically preaches a sermon, and that's Deuteronomy. Um, and the word Deuteronomy even means second law. It's the re-giving, retelling of the law. And there's an interesting thing. I'm going to read the, the Ten Commandments uh, from Deuteronomy because there's an addition to the way the Ten Commandments are stated in Deuteronomy that's not in the Exodus passage. And, and you'll see why I'm doing this, hopefully. Observe the Sabbath day, Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember, and this is what's added in Deuteronomy that's not in Exodus, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So that's interesting because their Sabbath adherence is also to remind you and to help you remember that you were once slaves who have been delivered. So it's important not just to quit working, but also to reflect and embrace and to appropriate again the fact that we're slaves who have been rescued by a rescue we could never work ourselves. And a couple other passages on Sabbath that I think are helpful. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And you may say, well, what is that about? I think at its bare minimum, what it means is that mankind was not made just to sort of fit into some little pattern so that God could be happy about Sabbath adherence. That rest is what you were made for. You were made for rest. That you weren't made just to sort of kind of fit into this little cookie cutter kind of, kind of thing. In other words... The Sabbath is pointing to something. The Sabbath itself is not the ultimate. Man was not made for the Sabbath, like the Sabbath is the ultimate thing. The Sabbath itself is pointing to something bigger than itself, and that's when we get to Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 4, I won't read all of it because we read this last week, but not all of you are here, so let me just read a couple verses. It says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. And he talks about how, um, look down at verse, where should we start here? Yes, verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them that did not go in because of their disobedience, verse 7, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later, after the promised land, after Israel was in the promised land, he spoke through David As in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And here's the point Hebrews is driving to. For if Joshua, who brought God's people into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So let's, let's talk about this idea of Sabbath a little bit more. I think the first thing you need to think about when you think about Sabbath is that Sabbath is about interference. It's about God for your good getting in your way and interfering with your life. Now, for a lot of you, that might be a strange thing because for a lot of us, whether we would say this or not, we really basically feel like God is our divine butler. Like he exists to open doors um, if we pray enough or if we do the right things or can sort of lick our fingers and see which way the wind is blowing and figure out God's will for our lives, his perfect will, then we figure that life will go smooth. And the idea that God would be so loving that he would stand in your way and interfere with you is quite a shift for a lot of people. But I would encourage you to look in the Bible and think about the character of God. He gets in people's way all the time. And Sabbath is ultimately about this idea of interference. There's a guy, Eugene Peterson, who's written many, many profound books. But one of my favorites is a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Y'all didn't get it at McKay's the other day. I found it for like three bucks. And so I know some of you guys go to McKay's. You should find that one next time it's there. Um, But he says this in that book, Sabbath is a deliberate act of interference, an interruption of our work every week. A decree by God of no work so that we are able to notice, to attend, to listen, to assimilate this comprehensive and majestic work of God, to, re, to orient our work in the work of God. So here's the point. Um, you could say that the gospel, what, what is the good news that Christians proclaim, The gospel is God to the rescue. If you want to know what is the gospel, that's a good way to think of it. It's God to the rescue when we couldn't rescue ourselves. But think about this. God's coming to the rescue. And often you've probably had this experience even of your own friends or loved ones who've come to your rescue. Often rescue first feels like interference. And people getting in their way, nosing in our business. But I pray that you have people that love you enough to get in your way. Because what the gospel is about is about God loves us so much that he gets in the way, that he interrupts, that he interferes. And then he says, if you want to continue to live out the freedom that I bought for you, because the Ten Commandments, you see, start out with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, continue to live free. And here's how you do it. Don't worship any other idols. Don't murder. Don't covet. Set apart the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is how you live this freedom. The Ten Commandments, and particularly the command to set one day apart, is not about putting you back into slavery. That's why I hate when I I drive down the road sometimes. There was a guy, they don't have it anymore, but on Franklin Road near my house, this guy had the Ten Commandments posted in his yard except he left out the introduction to the Ten Commandments, which completely changes the point. I don't believe you should put the Ten Commandments on a courtroom wall without the introduction, because the Ten Commandments are about God has redeemed you, has brought you out of slavery, now live this freedom. All right? 
And, and so it's so important to understand part of this freedom involves God interfering and saying, hey, stop what you're doing. If you want to understand freedom, if you're longing to be free, the first thing God says is stop what you're doing at least one day so that I can talk to you a little bit, so we can think about it, so we can commune together about why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living the way you're living? So Sabbath is about interference. Not only that, Sabbath is a countercultural stand. We're not going to take it, Twisted Sister said. And uh, I think we need to have more of that attitude as Christians. That we go out into the world and we say, I, you can't lie to me like this. God says that I was not made to work all the time. The one who made me and loves me says I need to stop one day in seven. Uh, William Wilmon, used to be the chaplain at Duke, said it this way. Sabbath keeping is a publicly enacted sign of our trust that God keeps the world. Therefore, we don't have to. Let me say that again. Sabbath keeping is a publicly enacted sign of our trust that God keeps the world and therefore, we don't have to. Does anybody here struggle with control issues? And you wonder, like, sometimes I'll ask students, like, you know, how are you doing with that? And they say, well, you know, I'm really working on it. And if I, if I like to mess with people, I'll say, how exactly are you working on that? What, what working on it usually means for Christians is I think about it from time to time, and I feel bad about it when I do. <laughs> and I wish I wasn't like that. But let me tell you, if you have control issues... This is one of the things God has given to help you. To say, on this day, I just let it go. And things may fall apart, but things may need to fall apart for me to realize that God is still God. And life goes on. Now, it may fall apart in such a way that you realize, oh, I need to say no to things on other days, too. Because I've so filled my life that I can't have any kind of Sabbath, I probably need to say no on other days, not just on Sunday. In other words, you can't be a workaholic and fill your life with, the, you know, with stuff that would take three people full you know, weeks to accomplish. And then say, yes, but on Sunday, I'm just going to stop and let everything fall apart. Now, you have to, Sunday, saying no on Sunday teaches you to say no on the other days. It actually gives you a day to settle down and to take stock of where you're at. But it starts with this idea of saying that, that I, I need to be able to, to trust that God is in control of the world. And, and rather than just saying, like, I wish I believed that, sometimes what you need to do is start living like you believe that. John Wesley, one time, when, when he was early in his ministry, and he was not yet a Christian, and he knew he wasn't a Christian, but he was still an ordained pastor, and he was preaching, and he'd been to Georgia as a missionary already, and he'd failed miserably, and had went back to... Um, England, and he asked this friend of his who was a Christian, he said, you know, how can I get the new birth? How can I come to understand and to experience this new birth that the Bible talks about, this regeneration, being born again? And this advice that this guy gave him, this other pastor gave him was, preach the new birth. Preach the new birth until you find it. Like, start, start teaching it to other people. You're convinced it's true in the Bible. Talk about it. Preach about it, and hopefully God will speak it to your heart, and you'll actually believe it. And that's exactly what happened. So I would say, if you're at least even a little bit theoretically convinced that God wants you to have a Sabbath, 
Start living it. Start telling other people why it's a good thing. And then listen to what you're saying and pray that God will help you to believe it. Um, all right, so here's the four aspects, and I'm going to talk just a little bit about each of these four. And to, honestly, if you want to explore this more, um, a great thing to do on, on your Sabbath is to read a book by this lady, Marva Dawn. I love Marva Dawn, uh, even though my iPhone keeps wanting to change it to Larva whenever I, <laughs> whenever I try to type her name. But she's an amazing, she's an amazing woman. I've heard her speak uh, several times now. I've met her a couple times, and she's just an amazing woman. Um, she has a book uh, called Keeping the Sabbath... Um, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And so these four kind of ideas, this is the way she breaks it down. She's a Lutheran pastor and scholar, has written a number of books, and I, I really love her. Marva Dawn is her name. So if you want to read a great book on starting to live Sabbath what, sort of rhythms in your life, this is a really good one. But she says first that it's about ceasing. And listen to how she puts it. She says, Sabbath ceasing means to cease not only from work itself, but also from the need to accomplish and be productive. From the worry and tension that accompany our modern criterion of efficiency. From our efforts to be in control of our lives as if we were God. It means to cease from our possessiveness and our enculturation. And finally, from the humdrum and meaninglessness that result when life is pursued without the Lord at the center now, this is really important. Ceasing, ceasing. Like before you can rest, you have to even like just stop. <laughs> like resting is not simply ceasing. They're, two, they're, they're, they're really two different things. But you can't really rest until you stop. Now, what, what, is that, what does that mean? It means that you need to be able to stop and even begin to do some self-examination and taking some stock of where you are. You need some time to get away and examine life from a different vantage point. Because there's a great verse, Eugene Peterson has this translation called The Message, where um, in Romans 12, uh, most translations say, you know, don't be conformed to this world. He says, um, don't be so well-adjusted to your world that you fit in without thinking. I love that. Strive for that every day. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without thinking. Being a real Christian should bring you into conflict with the assumptions of this world all the time. And if you're going to keep at it, you have to have some time to sort of stop and disconnect from all the messages and all the, like even what she says, like the culture squeezes you into the idea that God made you to be efficient. And most of you, whether you realize or not, have been brought up with this idea that you are your own sort of self-actualization project and that you're sinning against God and humanity and the universe if you don't make the most of everything you've been given. Develop your talents and your interests to the umph degree, no matter what it costs you, no matter what you have to sacrifice. I mean, my goodness, by middle school, most people have already decided whether they're going to pursue the arts or sports, and they don't even want to waste their time on something that they don't think they're really, really good at by the time they're in freaking middle school. And I feel it because we've got middle schooler. The sense like, okay, he could do this, this, or this, but he's kind of good at this, so let's, let's let him do this and let's let him do it in a way that he'll be really good at it. 
Like so often, like our parents, they mean well, but I think they are sort of desperate for us to feel good about ourselves that they let us try out all these things and we find something we're really good at and then they encourage us to do that and get really, really good at it. But they never stop it and interfere and say, wait a second, you know, you're not just what you're good at, right, son? Like, we have to be able to speak those kinds of things to each other. Ceasing means saying no to the way the world wants to squeeze you into thinking that you just exist to be sort of perfectly sculpted and molded into being the best you that you can possibly be. I'm not sure the Bible really teaches that. It's at least worth pondering. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, well, I think it's, it's sad. Here, here's, here's one of the things that she says that's so important about ceasing. She, sa- she argues this, that without ceasing, a ceasing that gives us freedom to see differently, work becomes a prime breeding ground for idols. If you're not ceasing your work and thinking about why you're doing it, it very quickly becomes a breeding ground for idols. Here's the way Eugene Peterson puts that idea. He says, without Sabbath, the workplace is soon emptied of any sense of the presence of God, and the work becomes an end in itself. It is this end in itself that makes an unsabbath workplace a breeding ground for idols. We make idols in our workplaces when we reduce all relationships to functions that we can manage. We make idols in our workplace when we reduce work to the dimensions of our egos and control. If there is no Sabbath, we soon become totally absorbed in what we are doing and saying, and God's work is either forgotten or marginalized. When we work, we are most godlike, he says, which means it is in our work that it is easiest to develop God pretensions. In our work, we are most godlike. And therefore, it is in our work that we are most able and easily able to take on these God pretensions. You need to stop working. You need to not be so efficient so that you can remember who you are and who God is. And God has set it up in such a way, whether you think you need this or not, God is very clear. You need to stop one day in seven. And this is one of the reasons why. And the question is, why are we afraid to do this? Again, it's hard, you know, this may be my only chance because you may not stop and you may not think about this question the rest of this week. So think about it at least for this moment. Why do we resist God's command to cease? What are we afraid of, right? What are we afraid of? I think a lot of us are afraid Well, I think we're afraid that either God won't be pleased with us if we don't just do a little bit more or that we may miss out on something that we could have if we just sacrificed a little bit more. And all of those are sort of railing against the providence of God and the sufficiency of what he wants to do for you. He doesn't say cease because he wants you to have a miserable life. He says cease because he doesn't want you to run around like a chicken with its head cut off. So we begin with ceasing, but then Sabbath keeping moves on to resting. 
Sabbath keeping isn't just taking a nap, though for many of you that might be a great thing to do on the Sabbath. Um, but, you know, in Isaiah 30, 15, God says this, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Now, Marva Dawn points out, and I think this is absolutely true, that before you can actually rest in your life, you have to rest spiritually in Jesus. Because the main reason that you, people find it difficult to rest is because the things that they're doing are the things that they're using to justify their existence. And until something else justifies your existence, you can't let go of whatever it is you're working so hard at. And so spiritual rest is an absolutely vital prerequisite to really resting. Until you can really rest in Christ, it's very difficult to quit doing the things that are controlling you. Now, physical rest is really important. And you have to think in terms of what does it mean for me to physically rest, to emotionally rest, to intellectually rest, right? But I think one of the problems with a lot of Christians is they really don't believe in grace, and therefore they feel like they always need to do a little bit more for God. A little bit more. I could do a little bit more. I could sacrifice a little bit more. And of course you could. But if you do, you're violating one of the big ten. Right? He says you're to rest. So yeah, you could do some more stuff. And it may even be good Christian stuff. But you've got to rest. And that's, you've got to do it. Right? Then there's embracing. I'm moving on here because there's, there's too many things to talk about and not enough time. Embracing, she, she, and this is what I really loved about her book, is the embracing and the feasting. Because she says, for so many people, they think of Sabbath just as negative. Stop doing this, stop doing that. But as you saw, like in the Deuteronomy um, version of the Ten Commandments, God says that it's connected to remembering, to remembering the deliverance. So there's something... Even when you stop doing this, it enables you to embrace something else. What are we to embrace? She says this, Sabbath keeping is not just negative ceasing, but involves deliberately embracing Christian values and practices. The important point in all of our imitation of God is its deliberate intentionality. We don't just think God's values are good. We embrace them wholly. To embrace is to accept with gusto, to live to the hilt, to choose with extra intentionality and tenacity. In other words, we have to get used to the idea that living as a Christian means that you have to live intentionally. You can't just be sort of bounced around by what other circumstances happen to you. You have to take captive thoughts. You have to think about your life and what you were made for and what you should be doing, right? But doing that in a sense that none of these things that I'm supposed to do justify my existence. The only thing that can justify my existence is God who lived and died in my place in the person of Jesus. That justifies my existence. And now all this other stuff, I'm free to do it for him and his glory. But I don't have to do it to get his smile. In other words, you know, I feel his pleasure when I do these things. But I don't have 10 seconds uh, to justify my existence to God today. So I better have a quiet time. You know, because he's not going to like me if I don't today. Quiet times are wonderful, and you should do them. But it should be a time where you drink in God's grace and remember that he's big enough 
and strong enough, and he loves you so that you can rest. It's, you know, what does it mean to even start your day with rest every day? What does it mean that in Christian understanding, the week begins with the day of rest? We don't work, 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 and then finally rest at the end. We actually begin with rest. Because it's important to live the Christian life to understand that God has done what you needed to do. And only when that sinks into you by resting for a whole day, then you're ready to get up and start working. Right? So embracing these ideas, embracing trying to think Christianly about everything that you do in all areas of life. Right? In other words, here's the way, uh, again, Marva Dawn puts it, and I think she says it well. Living as a Christian is not something that just happens without thought, prayer, a community, and great struggle. Sabbath keeping, she says, says clearly that we are not going to do what everybody else does. You'll be weird. Your roommate will probably be annoyed, right? Your parents may think you joined a cult. I don't know what will happen, but God says Sabbath keeping should be part of your life. She says that Sabbath keeping says we're not going to do what everybody else does. We're going to be deliberate about our choices in order to live truly in response to the grace of God. For example, everyone else goes window shopping at the mall on that day. But we've chosen to cease the American hankering after possessions. We've chosen to embrace the Sabbath day as holy time for carefulness. So what about, you know, what about ceasing surfing the internet on the Sabbath? Or whatever you do, what would be a way to spread the Sabbath that's different from your other days? What price, in other words, are you willing to pay to live as a true counterculture? Because Christian community should be a community that demonstrates to the rest of the world that there is another way to live. That our lives do not have to be have to. Our lives can be, because of what God has done, I get to do this. And I get to do that, right? Consider, and she has a bunch of sort of countercultural ways to live as Sabbath keepers. I'll let you read those, and I'm going to jump down to feasting. Because this was my favorite one. You know, I love chocolate. I love good German chocolate. I love Ritter Sport in particular, especially the, the milk chocolate kind that you can't seem to get here in the import version. You can get the Alpine milk, but not the milk chocolate. Anyway, you don't care. But here's one of the things that she suggests in this book. She said that for the Jews, one of the things that they often did on the Sabbath was they would have special food and special treats that they would enjoy on the Sabbath. So, for instance, I was used to, like, eating one little square of chocolate a day. I, Wendy can tell you, I have my little candy stash. If you come to my house, you can see it, right? Um, it was so sad recently because it got some ants, and I had to throw away all this amazing chocolate. Oh, I know, terrible, Yeah. So, but what I was doing is I was, I had this Ritter Sport chocolate bar, right? And the squares aren't very big, but I would eat one a day. And Ritter Sport is good chocolate, so it just can melt on your tongue, not like Hershey's, which is just kind of becomes like chewed up chalk, you know, when you, no, the good chocolate just melts and dissolves on your tongue. And I would do that, and and the experience would last about 10 minutes, it was awesome. But she said, instead of doing that, in her book, she suggests, why not save the whole bar until Sunday, and then just gorge yourself on it. So I tried that, and it was great. Yeah, it was. Now, she suggests, you know, even even doing something as simple as on other days, I eat off paper plates, but on this day, I dig out real dishes. I, I use real china. I do something to say there's something special about what I get to enjoy on this day. 
In other words, the Sabbath is to be a joy and a delight. And there is this passage in Isaiah 58, which often gets mistranslated or misunderstood, um, even especially in the Reformed tradition. God says this, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. But what does do as you please mean? Some Christians have taken that to say, don't do anything that you enjoy on the Sabbath. But no, it's, it's another way of saying don't sin on the Sabbath. It's not saying don't enjoy anything. You know, there is this place in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I wouldn't have believed it myself when I was in seminary and a professor pointed this passage out. I never would have believed it was in the Bible. I'd read the whole Bible, but somehow I overlooked this. But in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage and from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And he goes on, he says, Timothy, if you point this out to the brethren, you are a good minister of the gospel. So as a good minister of the gospel, I want to commend to you the enjoyment of this amazing world that God has made. And and take a day where you can work on and enjoy this love relationship that God desires to have with you. And that he expresses and manifests to you through other people, through good books, through movies, through music, through good food. Chocolate, I love the cocoa trees little, little motto that chocolate is evidence that God created us for pleasure. Right? I believe that with the, every bit of my being. Yeah. You know? So the Sabbath is to be a joy and a delight. And that doesn't mean that you just do what you think of as spiritual things. That means that you understand that God has created you physical and created you to enjoy this world that he's made. The Sabbath, you see, is to be a party that whets our appetite for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is coming. It is coming. So the Sabbath should, be, should create even an ache. It should be a rest that creates an ache and a longing for the Sabbath that will never end. Because there is a sense in which Sabbath is wonderful, especially when you start building into your life and you look forward to it and you enjoy it, and then it ends. But it's teaching us that we're made for a Sabbath that will never end, right? It's a day to feast on our God and worship. The Puritans used to call the Sabbath the market day of the soul. Because in their day and age, they would go to the market once a week and stock up on everything. And they're like, if you can go hear two sermons, go for it. And stock up spiritually as much as you can. If you have an opportunity to spend extra time with God and with your community, encouraging one another, fellowshipping together, why wouldn't you not do that? Right? And then finally, it's a day to focus on beauty and the good gifts of our God and enjoy them. Right? Um, Sabbath is important. Now, I, you, what you may notice is I didn't answer all your picky little questions about can we go out to eat on the Sabbath? Can we do this? Can we do that? Should I go shopping? Can I do homework? I don't want to get into that. I want you to listen. The Christian life is not about me telling you a bunch of rules. As a matter of fact, the Bible says I'm not allowed to make rules that the Bible doesn't say are rules. But I will commend to you, and what I think is more important is for you to think and to ponder What does Sabbath need to look like in my life? And I will just start with this assumption. You should start with this assumption too. I'm not resting enough. You're not resting enough and neither am I, right? So 
how can we begin to move that way? And how can we get a couple friends who will help us move that way? Because it's very hard to be countercultural by yourself. It's much, it's much better to link arms with a couple people and say, let's be countercultural together. And let's encourage people, encourage one another that Jesus lived and died in our place. Therefore, we can rest and we can enjoy him and enjoy his creation. And man, I, be weird in that way. And be inviting to people who desperately need to know that it's okay to cease, to rest, to embrace a different way of living and thinking, and even to feast. Do you know very many people that think of Christians as people who feast? No, most people think of Christians as sour-faced people who don't enjoy life. And part of it's because we don't understand Sabbath and we don't practice it. Let's pray together.